if you've watched my uh, channel for any period of time, you'll have heard me use analogies that take place in the world of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Um, and I have had an enormous appreciation for the world of Middle-earth for many years. Um, but one of the questions that I've never heard satisfactorily answered is, uh, well, first of all, why is this um, story so enthralling, so immersive, so rich, and so powerful? Why does it move so many of us? But then secondly, is it, J.R.R. Tolkien was notably a Christian, um, and, and publicly so, but there's been a long-standing debate over whether or not Lord of the Rings and, uh, and Tolkien's other literature constitute uh, Christian fiction. Um, so just how should we answer those questions? Those are the things that we'll tackle in today's episode of The Apologetics. <laughs> This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. My name is Chris Date. Uh, I'm really excited to interview my guest uh, today, but before I jump into that, and because my time with him is, is somewhat limited, I'm going to try to uh, jump right into that as quickly as possible after uh, a quick announcement of sorts that I wanna make. Um, my When I, I was married about uh, just under 21, uh, 21 years ago, and the best man at my wedding recently, in fact, just today, launched his own YouTube channel. And it's something that really impresses me, something that um, I really admire, because one of the problems I see in uh, many, among many Christian circles is a lack of appreciation for the, the, the world as it is here and now, in particular in the way that we exercise stewardship as God's viceroys, his agents, over creation, uh, and in particularly the intersection between humankind and animal kind, how it is that we coexist. Of course, as um, we've been assigned stewardship over this world over uh, the environment, um, even even during this period of time in which we are so ravaged, both humankind and the environment, by the effects of sin. Um, so we can't just, or at least we shouldn't, be just sort of uh, ignoring the uh, stewardship over creation just because the time is going to come in the future where uh, the king will return and restore the cosmos to the perfection it once exhibited. Um, we can't just wait for that. We should be trying to usher in some of that not yet, even in the already. Um, and that's something that I really appreciate about my friend and what he's been doing for 20 years or more. And I want to share uh, a teaser um, that was that, that has launched his um, YouTube channel before I jump into my interview today. Now, he because he just launched the channel today, does not yet have enough subscribers to have his own custom URL. You know, like this is youtube.com slash theapologetics. And then, of course, the other show I do is youtube.com slash rethinkinghell. Well, he doesn't have enough subscribers for that yet, but I'd like to help him get to that point. And in the meantime, I've put a little URL shortener up on the screen so it's easier for you to find his YouTube channel. Uh, just go to tinyurl.com slash wolfranger 
and check out some of his uh, really cool videos. I think that you'll uh, really enjoy them and, and follow his journey as he uploads more and more videos where he tries to um, exercise the kind of stewardship uh, that I've been talking about, where he tries to help humans and animal kind uh, coexist in, in better harmony and in better peace. Here's a quick teaser that I want to play to try and get some of you to uh, check out what he's up to. Here you go. So that's, like I said, he was the best man at my wedding. My friend Dan Curry, he's also known as the Wolf Ranger. And I'd uh, really encourage you to check out his channel, The Wolf Ranger, on YouTube. Uh, subscribe, like his videos. I think that you're going to be uh, in for a real wild ride over the coming months. Um, with all of that out of the way, let me introduce my guest today. He's the author of a recently published book, The Good News of the Return of the King, uh, The Gospel in Middle Earth. Uh, Middle Earth of is, of course, the world in which Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and so forth this set. Uh, it was authored by J.R.R. Tolkien, and my guest has been a professor of humanities at St. Petersburg College in, in Florida for um, over a decade, and um, as I said, he, he recently published this book on how one can find the gospel in the writings of uh, the, the writings in which middle uh, in, in which the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and everything that, that world in which it takes place. So without further ado, uh, Michael, thank you so very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Um, I'd like to get started by getting to know you a bit. Um, of course, we're going to shift gears and start talking about your book specifically soon, um, but uh, it's something I like to do to just get to know everybody beforehand. So um, I I'd like to start with sort of your spiritual background. It were you raised in a um, Christian household of some sort, or, or are you like me in that you came to faith later in life? Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I like to think that I kind of came uh, to faith in stages, but yeah, I was raised in a Christian home. Um, I think my dad is Episcopalian. Uh, he might be yelling at me from over in Cocoa Beach about this, but um, my mom uh, baptized me and, and had me uh, receive First Communion in the Catholic Church. So in the 1990s, uh, we were part of um, the Catholic Church, at least uh, you know somewhat. I attended uh, you know Bible classes and things like that. So we, you know I don't remember talking about um, Christianity a lot at home, uh, but there was no kind of anti-Christian tone, and certainly not the stories that we hear from a lot of folks. So, um, you know, a kind of a, maybe a, a lukewarm kind of Catholicism, I might put it. And do you want me to just kind of give you the whole spiel? Well, I'll, I'll try to give Steer us me. little breadcrumbs to, uh, along the way. Yeah. yeah. So, so after having been raised in, as you said, something of a, um, a nominal uh, Catholic home, mm -hmm. you wandered away from Christianity sometime around the late 90s, and, and we'll pick back up on a moment where you started to come back to the faith, but mm -hmm. what was it that caused you to wander um, and, 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 and reject not just Catholicism, but Christianity as a whole for some time? Well, I, I may I may want to rephrase it. I, I don't think in my book I say that I rejected, but I just kind of became a meh, you know, I, I, was, I was young, 
my parents had gotten divorced and I really had nobody, uh, no gatekeepers in my life at that time. And uh, really, I think the problem was there was no one on either the Protestant or the Catholic side to catechize me. So I was uh, just kind of, you know, like, okay, you know, where do I go from here? So I wandered and I kind of became disinterested, I think is a good word for it. And uh, certainly never felt any um, angst towards Christ or any hatred or disdain for any of the teachings, just kind of, you know, not really interested. Uh, and then, of course, that changed. But really, we moved around a lot in the 1990s. We lived in Saudi Arabia for a few years. We were in Virginia. Yeah, we were in Maryland, back to Virginia, and then eventually to Florida. Yeah, so there was a lot, there was a lot of ping-ponging around. Uh, that had something to do with it as well. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Well, to whatever extent you uh, rejected or at the very least were uninterested in Christianity, yeah. uh, in 2001, there were a couple of things that got you to start reconsidering the Christian faith, uh, taking it more seriously than you'd been doing. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll get to what one of those things was in a moment. But what was the, the other thing having to do with your mom? Tell us about that and how she got you to start reconsidering the truth claims of Christianity. Sure. Yeah. So this is interesting. So I'll say now, I know you said we'll, we'll tease it this later, but but um, I, I didn't see the connection between me discovering Tolkien's writings for the first time and rediscovering Christianity again. I didn't see that in 2001. It took me until about 2010 or 11. But setting that aside, my mom got in a car accident, a pretty pretty uh, bad one. In fact, she had, uh, I think, died in the hospital. And this all happened when I was in middle school and I was actually sleeping. Woke up the next day, heard about all that. It was very traumatic. Um, she... Um, Let's see, that must, must have been 1998. And I think, as she tells me now, that this was something when she started to personally question and reevaluate her faith. A couple years later, as we were, by 2001, uh, by the spring or summer, I think we were down by that time in uh, Florida again. And she started to watch, um, you know, and looking back now, I realize this was kind of baby food, Christianity, prosperity, gospel stuff. We had no idea. We really did. And didn't have any clue what Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen, you know, we thought they were the greatest thing. And I, I, um, I share this candidly. I, I'm, I'm kind of, I want to say somewhat ashamed of it now. Um, but I am grateful that God used, um, you know, scripture and I became kind of the prayer guy as my basketball coach <laughs> called me, you know, Jahoski, get out your Bible, let's pray. And I'm like, okay. So I got to know my scripture, my mom, you know, I would always see her memorizing scripture. She'd have the index cards out. She was up every morning, you know, with the towel around her head, looking, looking at the screen, reading something, sharing something. So it was very influential. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna have to take a, take a look at what the big fuss is about this again, because she's interested. And, and so it began. So. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that's kind of curious is that whereas you had been raised in, in something of a nominal Roman Catholic home, um, when you started reconsidering the faith seriously in 2001, you eventually got involved not in Roman Catholicism, but in a particular denomination within Protestantism. So tell yeah. us about that, why it is that you gravitated toward that for a while and how you were involved in the Protestant church for some time. Yeah, so, you know, I will say that um, this is such a choppy journey. It wouldn't become until <laughs> 2013 when I think and, and my wife can correct me here if I'm wrong but when we were you know she was pregnant with our first child and uh, we were expecting and we said we really need to start taking this seriously about community so my my adult involvement let's say in and in serious involvement in the Protestant side of the, the church started in 2013 however starting in 2001 and then eventually through high school i was the prayer guy when i got to ucf uh in 2004 the summer of 2004 i got into a program 
Um, you know, I started to get involved. I think it, I can't remember which Christian club it was, but it was InterVarsity or something at UCF. Now I was slightly turned off uh, at the time to the Turner Burn, uh, you know, sort of approach uh, that the campus group in question, whichever one it was, was taking. But I was involved in a maybe it was non-denominational. I don't remember what they were affiliated with. Uh, I was with them for a little bit of time in 2004, 2005. And then I realized, you know, look, I believe in hell. I believe in I believe in these teachings, but I just don't think that this is right. And so I was, you know, modestly modestly involved in the Protestant Church in late high school, college, undergraduate, uh, graduate school. But really, until after I came home from meeting my my wife in Italy on a study abroad program, that's where we met uh, in 2006. And as we started to discuss the future of our faith together, and then down the years, like I said, it wasn't until Ultimately, 2013 is another one of those milestone years for me. That's where uh, both me and my wife both got involved in a Presbyterian church uh, here in Clearwater and uh, had been involved all the way through quarantine in 2020. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, but in your book, which was published last year, 2020, you do talk about... um, what at the time was at least appeared to be a trend back toward Roman Catholicism. Um, And so what was it that that spurred you to start gravitating toward Roman Catholicism again back in 2020? So um, little known fact, I don't know if I mentioned this book, I I cut so much, you know, because I was trying to reduce (laughs) and they were like, already this is pretty long. I'm like, I know. Um, So in one of the drafts, I know I had it in there, but there was, uh, while we were involved at Northwood Presbyterian, in 2015, we had taken a hiatus, I don't know from what, we were just kind of re-examining kind of the commitment at the church and talking with some of the members, trying to get people drummed up and interested in their faith and, and expanding their horizons. And we said, you know, maybe we should explore your Catholic side of things. And so we we tried RCIA in 2015. We were disappointed with sort of the bureaucratic standoffish approach. I've talked with some Catholic friends. I know probably some of them are listening and thinking, you know, okay, yeah, that's not really a reason. But for me, it really is. That that that's a gatekeeper to the church. That that should that shouldn't be the first impression. So I'm going to stand by that. So it was a bit of a turnoff. So we went back to the Northwood Church, and then in, um, I think it was summer, spring, late spring, summer 2020. I guess that would have been, uh, you know, part of part of quarantine. Um, we, for whatever reason, I think. If I'm being honest, I, I'll, I'll be honest. Of course, it's the only way to be. I started to think, you know, I have a daughter now, and there was just something missing in my heart about the feminine side of, of the Christian faith. And I felt in my own life sort of a veneration and respect for Jesus's mother. And I think I was reading some books at that time through my Kindle library. And I just started, I pulled out my rosary again, and I just started thinking, maybe this is the choice you need to make. And at the time when I had put... Um, the final submission in that was the choice and then you know I didn't want to retract it because that was how it was and um, we have been since then since uh, 2020 uh, last spring slash summer we've been really tossing this back and forth and talking with a lot of people including yourself uh, which has been very helpful thank you um, on both sides of the aisle as it were to try to find out where kind of the future for our family should be so yeah yeah well, I appreciate you being forthright and, and uh, you know, of course, take of course. everything I say with a great big grain of salt. But um, but I appreciate you hearing me out when we did talk about it. And, and this is going to frame the last question I have for you on your background before we shift gears. Sure. Um, as I explained to you, 
Um, I have what I consider to be not sort of gut reactions, but principled uh, reasons for why I, I take I consider not individual Roman Catholics, but Roman Catholicism to be uh, a non to be not Christian. Mm. I told you about what some of those reasons are. Yeah. I think that Roman Catholics can be genuinely saved. I just think it's the ones who aren't very good Catholics mm. <laughs> who are. Yeah. But but putting all that aside, I, yeah. some listeners will know that that stand that I take and so be concerned about the fact that I'm having somebody on who has um, is unsure of where he stands and his family stands with regards mm -hmm. to Roman Catholicism Catholicism so before we shift gears my last question for you here is in what ways do you think you might gravitate toward or lean toward Protestantism and away from Roman Catholicism um, you know for example when it comes to sola fide and sola scriptura are those areas in which you find protestantism to be a you know a, a little bit more where the truth might lie or or what tell us about that. yeah you know i i should say i'll be honest again here of course the only way to be um to be really forthright and and, and um to share my heart about this i i didn't go to seminary and i didn't study systematic theology and so it's very hard for me sometimes uh to kind of identify with which doctrines i align and so when people will say well da -da 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 -da, and I'm, okay yeah that's me They'll they'll spell it out and they'll say, okay, yeah, translated thusly, then I am a premillennialist or whatever it is in question, uh, eschatologically this for something else. And so I think um, my regard for scripture is is uh, is obviously a priority. And so sola scriptura. Um, however, you know, I, I I wonder what my beliefs about this would be. For example, you know, I think that Christ first and foremost is the measure of truth, and that the Bible testifies to him that were, uh, you know, first and foremost Christians, not Biblians. So there are some things that I hear from the Protestant side where I wonder sometimes if we make too much of fuss over some literal interpretations of Scripture, but I don't think this makes me somehow more Catholic than Protestant. So I think these are normal concerns about, you know, interpreting Scripture appropriately. Um, I, I really, I don't know if there's anything that's really having me gravitate back other than familiarity and what I've been involved in my adult life is a Presbyterian church, is a Protestant church, and so I have more experience there, and I'm comfort uh, comfortable with the uh, structure of the church in that way. So I don't know if there's any one thing that I would feel, but uh, it seems that experience would would indicate that that's where I'm perhaps more comfortable. But then there are some things that are tugging at my heart uh, in in the Catholic side. So, yeah. Yeah. And some of those things are, I mean, you've, you've kind of uh, alluded to one of them already, and, mm -hmm. and some of these things are going to come up in your book. Certainly. We won't be talking about those today, but uh, let me just press a little bit more just on the sola fide thing, sure. just because I want my listeners to know where you stand. Um, I think that Roman Catholicism denies the doctrine of sola fide, um, by which we Protestants mean that we are saved by grace through faith alone, mm. um, and not because of our works, not because of anything that we do. Um, would you say that that is something where you're at least leaning toward a Protestant understanding of things? I, I would, yes, but I'm, okay. I, a friend just recently brought this to my attention. I'd have to look up the council. It was a Lutheran council that met with, uh, and it was just ratified with a, a lot of other Protestant churches and. 2017, but there was some sort of uh, consensus reached about that we are saved, you know, through faith and in, in grace from Christ alone, and not uh, not our works. And so I feel like more ecclesi um, ecclesiastically, perhaps uh, ecumenically, perhaps I should say, the Protestants and Catholics are coming to a more uh, you know more of a consensus on this issue. But I would say yes, it, it is through faith 
and through grace is something that we cannot earn and, and nothing we can ever do can merit it. So yeah, I would say that um, that is more of the Protestant side that I lean towards, certainly. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Hopefully yeah. that will explain to viewers why I'm willing to have a Roman or somebody that is at least at times identified as Roman Catholic <laughs> yeah. on the show. Um, uh, and I'll just say and, and leave it there that yeah. um, Lutherans don't represent all of Protestantism. Oh, so of course if, not. if Lutherans, Lutherans are taking a bit of a more ecumenical stance, that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that Protestants generally are no. coming to terms. Certainly anyway. not. No, no, I totally agree. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, let's shift gears now and yeah. talk about your academic and 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 background and your interests. Um, unlike many of us public Christians that have gone on to do undergraduate and graduate degrees or whatever, um, yours your degrees aren't in specifically in or at least primarily in Bible and theology and things like that. They're in the other humanities, mm-hmm. um, literature and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where where did you and why did you develop such an interest in the humanities broadly? And, and maybe you could touch on the specifics there um, such that you would devote several years of your adult life to earning degrees therein. Yeah, you know, I think ultimately uh, I, I my initial track was um, I was in classical humanities uh, focus as an undergrad and, and so was doing a lot of Greco-Roman studies and I had applied to graduate school to the classics department that didn't work out on both sides it kind of worked out for the best and that I didn't really want to make um, languages such a priority as it was and so there was kind of a shift a paradigm shift for me and uh, you know somebody said well why don't you look at the humanities department and I said okay I'm going to do that and there was more of um, a, a palette of things that I could do that I was interested in, that I wanted to choose certain areas of uh, expertise that I wanted to t- choose two or three. And so I did most of my graduate work in three areas, uh, Greek and Roman philosophy, history, uh, and, uh, and then, of course, I did a lot of uh, biblical-related uh, things. I took some classes in Christian thought and philosophy that, that dealt with uh, the Old Testament, but you know, these were not at a seminary um, or any kind of, you know, um, Bible college or anything like that. So they were really kind of more like humanities classes. And my goal was eventually I wanted to teach and I wanted to write and I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to share my knowledge with others. And so to some of your other questions, you know, what really got me into it was I remember sitting in, uh, this goes back to undergrad, it was kind of bouncing back and forth there. I was sitting in a hallway and uh, what did the guy say? Um, I remember it vividly. It was a narrow hallway at UCF, and he said something like, you know, Jesus was a Lutheran or a Catholic or something really just off the wall like that. And I said, yeah, yeah, I think I want to do this. You know, And I remember having a conversation with the guy and being like, okay, let's, let's get some terminology straight and history. And I'm like, okay. And it was actually for a Christian thought class, which was led by one of my favorite professors, Dr. Doug Evans, who's retired now. But anyway, he was also another reason why he was just a wonderful teacher and really kind of sparked a passion for the Greek, Roman, and you know Middle Eastern stuff. And uh, so I guess maybe a combination of seeing some ignorance, my travel background and expertise, some inspirational people in my life, and a desire within to want to share my knowledge with others really kind of led me to focusing ultimately on humanities. Hmm. You know, I... I- uh, it often it seems to me as if Christians um, 
very often think that the only kinds of higher education worth getting are ones in Bible and theology and, and philosophy, stuff like that. And I think that's really unfortunate. It, it, mm. For the same reason, I think it's unfortunate that a lot of Christians are under the misconception that the only kind of Christian vocation is in like the pastorate or something like that. When the reality is we need Christian software engineers like me. We need Christian lawyers and all, all sorts of things. Uh, with that in mind, um, for those who might have an interest in various topics within the humanities, but might think that somehow they're only going to have value and meaning and purpose in a degree if they do something in Bible and theology. Sure. What would you just say to them? What would be the value for them in pursuing their interest in the humanities more broadly? What would you say to encourage them? I uh, I would say this. In fact, I, I, I read this quote because I have a colleague um, who just recommended Dallas Willard's uh, The Great Conspiracy to me, I think it was in one of those two books that he wrote, I think a couple and I remember Willard said something like, if you enter the seminary first, the university is closed to you. If you enter university, the seminary is open to you. Something to that extent. I remember he worded it in a much more eloquent way, but that was kind of the gist of it. And he explained it, of course, and that might be mis misleading. But hearing that kind of would, that would have been what I would have really enjoyed hearing back in the day. You know, like, you know, hmm. there there is... You want to do something as a Christian in education? Well, okay, well, you didn't go to seminary, but you have this open to you. There are ways for which you can profess your faith in a respectful way in a secular college. There are ways in which you can, for example, engage um, the relationship among religions and the way that that is expressed through the visual arts, which I do a lot of talks on religious pluralism and the, the I think it's not logical or, or, or accurate or valid, but you know we talk about both sides and so I would say that there is a great deal of value in, in studying, first of all, as Christians, we're called to, to look at all of God's imagers and to see, um, even, you know, of course, if we ultimately think that, you know, it's kind of light through stained glass, as Lewis said, and, you know, it may not be closer to the truth than other points of view, we're still supposed to learn from other cultures, I think. And so I would tell um, a young student, you know, that there is great value in studying humanities. You can be very well-rounded and uh, choose a few areas in which you want to really excel and it gives you um, a very multicultural sort of uh, character and, and uh, accessibility. So I, I could go on uh, about this, but yeah, in SPC we have a great school. Uh, we were really uh, great online programs. We were ranked um, the US News and World Report's uh, best online programs. We were like in the top 20 or something there and number 21, it says, yeah, among public colleges in the southern region. Um, you know, we're one of the top schools for vets. And so, you know, people who've served that that's a really good um, uh, program. We have we have lots of programs to draw them to it. So anyway, yeah. No, very cool. And you kind of got to the next question I was yeah. going to ask, which yeah. is why people might check out, want to check out St. Petersburg. I'm, I'm so used to asking my guests, you know, why they might, why viewers might like to consider this Christian university or this seminary or whatever. Right. It's kind of cool to be able to ask somebody why Christian viewers might want to get a degree in a public university yeah. like St. Petersburg. So I'll encourage people to check that out. Mm. Um, one last question, and then we'll shift gears to your book. Yeah. Um, to what extent and how do you have the opportunity in your teaching context to discuss Christianity with your students? Because obviously that's something we get to do a lot of in seminaries and Christian schools, but in public ones, there's at least the impression that it's just the whole university setting is totally, you know, hostile toward Christianity, uh, specifically, if not religion more broadly. Um, so, mm. so how, if at all, do you have the opportunity to be a bit of a witness for Christ in the classroom or do you at all I, I do and I'm, I'm always ready to give a response with gentleness and respect you know the first Peter 315 
very famous, um, you know, apologetic scripture. So I'm, I, I feel that I'm always prepared. It doesn't mean I always have the answers, of course, but I'm at least prepared to say, okay, let's talk about this. I'll give you some concrete examples in a second. Um, but studying uh, and researching for this book that I've written uh, that was just published in the fall of last year really gave me a lot of opportunities to learn how to do this. And it's really through the study of what one of Tolkien's good friends uh, who we'll talk about, Father Robert Murray, uh, wrote an essay called Tolkien and the Art of the Parable. And learning the art of the parable, I would say, which we can talk about what that uh, entails later, has really helped me to be able to be a witness in the classroom at a secular college. However, I don't go in with the expectation, the ex explicit desire to convert my students or to uh, to, to proclaim my faith. I'm, I, I don't think any of my students have ever um, either said this about me or accused me of it uh, from either perspective. So one of the things I do um, is that I bring my, my training and background from philosophy and history into the classroom. And so we have units on critical thinking and mythology that are back to back in Intro to Humanities, for example. And there I talk about um, you know, mythos and logos. And I talk, of course, about uh, the laws of logic. And I give them a lot of um, introduction, what you might call to uh, moral philosophy or ethics. And I give this opportunity to present uh, for my students, you know, various ways of anchoring our moral values and, and duties and various systems and get them thinking about maybe perhaps that uh, a personal God might be the best grounding for that. And that's one example. My mythology unit is probably my favorite because when I just finished a uh, two weeks ago, two weeks, three weeks ago, was a comparison between Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung's sort of approach to mythology and C.S. Lewis, which I, of course, also threw in a little J.R.R. Tolkien. And so we talked about that, and I had students asking me questions. And when that happens, I had one young lady said, uh, can you give us some examples of how other myths might uh, anticipate uh, or, or point to or gesture towards the Christian myth understood as narrated worldview? And I said, sure. And I did this in a, in a gentle way and not, you know, didn't ask them to come to a point of decision. I let the information speak for itself. Uh, and there are numerous other opportunities coming up where, you know, this does come up and there are lots of opportunities. And of course, when I'm asked and I have a, a student who's interested in Christianity or uh, interested in something I've said or they've been able to, I've had students who go, you sound like a Christian. I'm like, okay, yeah, <laughs> you got me. That's a good thing to hear. I know. And then, and then my <laughs> wife will tell you this story. It's really funny. Um, there's this one lady who always came in with an I love Jesus hat. And I know it was her that left this comment, but she always disagreed with sort of my approach. She was very, I don't know, Bible belt, kind of Bible thumping kind of Christian. We, we didn't see eye to eye, but the uh, I knew it was her in the comments, even though they're anonymous. She said, this man does not love Jesus. And my boss, who's a Christian at the time, he, he was retired, but he said, Wow, Mike, you really hid your faith well if she said that about you. <laughs> so I was like, all right, you know, so that, you know, there are opportunities, but it's certainly, there are days when I feel, you know, throttled almost, not by administration or anything like that, but um, certainly not. I've got a great boss and great colleagues. We have great faculty, but it's more just, I don't want to say something that's going to come across in this age of sensitivity in the wrong way. So I'm constantly trying to refine. You know, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. Well, but but you're trying, and I think that uh, that's really commendable. And like, and like I said, I, I I would like to see you know I I have my viewers know for years felt that I have been called to um, 
be you know to teach at the university or seminary level um and then of course there are people who are called to the pastorate but but there are lots of christians that i just would like to see um see value in all the other kinds of vocations that god has um appointed us to or given us the opportunity to to pursue so i'm I'm glad to see you doing that um Let's shift gears then and talk about your book that got published last year by Whip and Stock. By the way, they're the same publisher who published, uh, let's see, where are they? Um, they're over my head, right? Yeah, I see. Ah, there they sorry. are. Yeah. Yeah. So these two books right here are published by Whip and Stock. But anyway, great awesome. publisher. Um, uh, yes, the book are. is, of course, called The Good News of the Return of the King, subtitle The Gospel in Middle Earth. Um, you first encountered Lord of the Rings 20 years ago in 2001. Um, and of course, that is what ultimately spawned the book that uh, we're going to be talking about today. Um, tell us how you encountered the Lord of the Rings and, and why it was so uh, such a monumental discovery for you. You know, uh, thank you, Chris. So it's, it's funny. I, I write a lot about the necessity of looking back which many Tolkien and Christian scholars have spoken about in the works of Tolkien and in the Bible. But it's, it's interesting how much I've written about this from sort of a hermeneutical standpoint uh, in my book, but there's another way in, in which I've had to look back in writing this book and looking back on my own life and being able to answer this question. And at the time, in 2001, before the movie came out in uh, December of 2001, the first movie, I think it was, obviously, um, my brother started reading The Fellowship of the Ring. We didn't finish it. We, we read through them uh, you know, on the months and years after that. And then I started reading The Silmarillion and the others on my own. But at the time, I didn't make any connection whatsoever between uh, Christianity and, and my being interested in that again in The Lord of the Rings. All I knew is that uh, I, I, I mean, they were separate in my mind. It was the weirdest thing. I look back and I'm like, how did I not see this? I think maybe I did, but not in explicit ways like I do now where I'm making connections. It was this, uh, like Lewis talks about this inconsolable longing, this sense of, I write in my book, this sense of urgency that I, I wanted the Bible to feel like that. And I felt that sometimes because I didn't have any gatekeepers and people helping me, guiding me in life about the Bible, maybe I gravitated toward Tolkien's books because, and, and I do think the gospel is lurking therein, um, but maybe it was that I found uh, that that was a more interesting reality because that that had the gospel in there and it was showing me how the gospel really is and then some. And anyway, I didn't know about all this until much later. So looking back, it's just having to kind of put it to, all together has been a lot of fun. When I sat down to write the preface and the introduction, especially the preface, I had a lot of fun thinking about uh, you know how I kind of came to uh, to write this book. But what's great is that the the the, the censure for me was um, in 2010 or 11. I, I remember it was. I think it was 2011 when N.T. Wright's Simply Jesus book came out. I remember sitting in bed reading it and saying, "This story sounds familiar. I know that he's talking about the Bible." And I I loved and and just kind of understood intuitively that this was a a good, uh, a sound reading of the Bible and of Scripture, at least I, I feel that it was, and I had it sounded familiar, and that's when I started to put the pieces together and think, I've heard this in Middle Earth before, and so the light bulb came on. So that was about ten years after, obviously two thousand one, and then, anyway, yeah. So you know, what's interesting is that in two thousand one, uh, to to kind of tie things up, I didn't see the connection, but God. God did, and God obviously had these two things coincide in my life for a reason. So, 
Very cool. Mm. Well, well, let's fast forward to um, 2015 mm -hmm. because I think that's where we're going to get a little bit closer to the uh, inception of your book. Yeah. You you were part of a uh, panel in 2015 where you d delivered a presentation. Um, tell us about that presentation, the panel you were a part of, and how it spurred you to take on this book project. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So in 2012, when uh, another set of movies that we won't speak of, uh, Hobbit movies, oh, God, they're so... Uh, let's get into that on another podcast, perhaps. So um, the the movies have their strong points, but when when the first Hobbit movie came out in 2012, I started to journal some insights as I was putting things together right after reading Wright's book, and I was just I had Microsoft Word open. I remember, uh, especially during uh, Advent and holiday breaks, I was sitting there typing things up, and it was really just seeing things in Middle Earth uh, that were reflecting the Christian worldview. And over the next couple of years, I did this every time I could get a break. Uh, and in 2012, I got my full-time position, so there were I was teaching a lot more. So I didn't have a lot of time, but when I did, I sat down, I journaled. Journal became uh, journal notes became a, a kind of a pitch, whatever it was, an abstract. I think 2015, I went to New Orleans to the uh, PCA ACA, so Popular uh, Culture uh, Association, an American Culture Association, I think it stands for, uh, conference in New Orleans. Uh, my wife and I flew out there. We um, we had a great time. I went to the book booth after my presentation, which was on the uh, I think it was entitled something like Tolkien's Parable: The House of David in Middle Earth, which was an early working title. Um, and eventually, when working with the Tolkien Estate and the Houghton Mifflin Company, you know they didn't like that. It was too explicit. But anyway, um, for good reason, I understand. So I pitched this this paper that I had uh, presented to the uh, they had a book fair. And I got a lot of cold shoulders and was like, okay, wow, this is deflating. But at McFarland Publishers uh, was one that I dropped it off at. And I eventually heard back from them a few weeks later. And they offered me a chance to write a proposal, so I did. And I was with them until 2019. I know this is your next question, too. When, um, if you'd like, I'll just segue into that. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I, I, um, I had a what I thought was a very good, I had two peer reviewers. It went through peer review process in 2019 after four years of being with them. And they knew the subject matter about what I was writing, about Tolkien and parables and how parables reflect truth and that that truth is the Christian truth. And so they knew all this. And nevertheless, after the peer reviews, there were two reports I read. One, I think clearly to say this diplomatically, had... Uh, anti-Christian bias that really just didn't want to consider any kind of, uh, he was listing fallacies and saying this is all this, confirmation bias, this, that, that. Good criticism in certain areas, but really just kind of, you know, don't write about Tolkien and Christianity. Okay, that was what I got from that. The second reviewer had some some good scathing points that were hard to hear, but I needed, but was largely positive. And I'm like, okay, you know, this is good. And then they said, oh no, we're gonna have to move on. So I had to leave them. And uh, it was really what I gathered because the book was just going in a direction they said that they didn't like, i.e. Christian direction, explicitly Christian direction. So I have to give a shout out to uh, Paul Gould because he um, answered a kind of desperate uh, plea of an unknown person who was teaching a Bible class um, you know, at, at Northwood on his book, Cultural Apologetics at the time. And I said, uh, I love your book. This is what I'm trying to do. I think an example of cultural apologetics. And I said, you know, would love any advice you'd have. And he graciously helped me to uh, to make connections and really display the love of Jesus. And and was just such a, a helpful a guy and, and shining example of of kindness. And eventually, this led me to scramble to find a book contract with Whippenstock eventually. And 
uh, it was a very tiring and, um, and, and difficult journey, but I got there. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I, I don't know Paul very well, but um, he and I have corresponded here and there, and he's always been extremely kind and helpful, yes. um, despite not having any idea who I am, probably. And so, uh, yeah, shout out to Paul Gould. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's over at uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University, right? Yeah, he's uh, across on the other coast from me, because I'm on uh, the Tampa side, right, the west side. So, yep. Yep. Yeah, so if people want to get a degree in philosophy, uh, Palm Beach Atlantic might be a place to consider, oh, yeah. and you'll get the a stellar education from Paul Gould. Two Pauls. All right. Yeah, yeah. Who's the other Paul? Paul Copen's there. Oh, Paul yeah. Co- Okay, yeah. all Copen. right. Sorry, yeah. So they're, they're both there. The two Pauls are there, and they've got that new uh, master's program I think is booting up this year. I think it's in the fall. So, yeah, definitely uh, you know, reach out to them if you're interested. That's really cool. I didn't. I, I'd forgotten that Paul Copan teaches there. He and I actually have a book proposal under consideration right now with uh, a publisher. Um, I won't say more about it now, though, yeah. until we get a book deal. I understand. Anyway, Can't wait to hear more. Yeah. Well, let's see if it happens, Lord willing. Um, Okay, well, let's dig into your book. Um, Again, the title of your book for viewers that didn't catch it the first couple times I mentioned it is The Good News of the Return of the King, subtitled The Gospel in Middle-Earth. The Return of the King, of course, is the title of the third book in the trilogy. Um, And uh, anyway... So early in your book, you observe that Tolkien disliked uh, a particular kind of allegory. And this is related to his seeming ambivalence or, or his his struggle. He, he seems on the one hand to kind of want to affirm that the Lord of the Rings is a Christian story. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to affirm that it's a Christian story. Um, and, exactly. and it seems that that has something to do with this dislike that he has for one particular kind of allegory. Uh, explain that for us um, to get us started. Yeah. So I'll just I'll speak to that point right now. I think I think uh, Clyde Kilby was a, a professor of English and, and who had interviewed Tolkien uh, at one point and, and said that Tolkien was guilty of contrasistency. was really quite ambivalent, a nice way to put it, but that's it. I think it's not that he was confused about allegory. I mean, the guy was a linguist after all. Uh, he was uh, obviously brilliant. Um, so it's not like he didn't know. Like, I don't know what an allegory is. It was that one Tolkien scholar, I think Jane Chance kind of put it, you know, Tolkien was trying to get across something to his readers that he couldn't communicate to them. He was frustrated trying to say it is in one sense a Christian story, but not that kind of Christian story. And so, as I'll show in a second, um, I think this comes from his uh, love of the way Jesus told stories and that one of his good friends and correspondents and confidants who read portions of The Lord of the Rings, uh, as far as I could tell from the research I did, Father Robert Murray, and Murray detected this in Tolkien as well, and saw in it this art of the parable, is what he called it. And uh, I'll I'll get to that later. But I do think what we're going to ultimately want to point out is that it is, and and some Tolkien scholars have pointed this out, it is in one sense an allegory, and then in another sense of the term allegory, it is very much not one. Uh, and this all depends on, you know, do we, first of all, allegory can be used to refer to a mode, a, a way of using language in a text. It can refer to the genre or composition, the entirety of the text. Allegoresis can also be referred to a hermeneutical strategy, which is a mode of interpretation. So depends on that, but then also depends on, you know, the writings of Tolkien. We have them, and he speaks of multiple kinds of allegories, which is a little known fact. Your listeners, I think, will appreciate and so we'll get into that. But yeah, I think, as you said, it, he was, you know, it, it, is a, it is a Christian story, folks. It is, a, it is a bonafide, fully Christian story. But it does have, as any good Christian story, I think, has, um, 
place for the other stories. And, and so, of course, yes, there are other influences in the novel, and that makes it more Christian, not less. But anyway, there's a good start. Well, no, that's really good. But but um, to, to help, before we get to talking about how it is a Christian story, um, tell us briefly how it isn't a Christian story, because I think that that has something to do with that particular kind of allegory sure. that I didn't like, right? What, Absolutely. What, what is that kind of allegory, and and, what's, and why is the, is the Lord of the Rings not that kind of Christian yeah. allegory? Let me give you, uh, and so in case anybody is out there listening and likes citations, okay, I won't be too, I promise, <laughs> cold and analytical, but... So if you look at the only collection of letters we have edited by Humphrey Carpenter, who also did the authorized biography, uh, the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. So when I number these letters, that's what I'm referring to. So in letter 131, um, and of course, everybody, first of all, back up, quotes the forward to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings and saying, I cordially dislike allegory in all of its manifestations. Everybody always goes to the forward of the second edition of The Lord of the Rings. We all know that one. But if you go and read the letters and elsewhere, you'll see that in letter 131, Tolkien says that he disliked the conscious and intentional allegory. He was very specific. That's letter 131. Now, I think it's uh, letter 186 that he says, of course, the Lord of the Rings is not an allegory of atomic power. You know, he was frustrated by a lot of American readers and their reductions of, uh, you know, the orcs are like Nazis, but it could just be the other way around as well. But then he says, okay, of course, yeah, it's a funny one. Of course, it's not an allegory of atomic power, but of power, with a capital P, exerted for dominion or domination. So it is, as Joseph Pierce has pointed out, as a, a Catholic Tolkien scholar, it is an allegory, just not the conscious and intentional. So what is the conscious and intentional? That's what it's not. It, it's, a, it's an overbearing, authorial intention to have allegorical mode that is clear, I, I would say, direct language transparent to the reality that it wants to portray dominating throughout the text i think also i have to give lewis a break here i don't think the narnia series are as allegorical as many people would like to think certain aspects are but i'll get to that later that allegorical mode can be and almost always is present in one of these stories tolkien admitted that's inevitable but i don't think that all of lewis and everybody always points to lewis well all of lewis's works are plainly allegorical. Lewis denied that in his letters. So we have to cut him a break, but we'll set him to the side. I would say it is not a Christian story in a conscious and intentional sense. And in what sense is it? Well, it's more parabolic. It more conforms to this art of the parable. But strangely, he calls the Lord of the Rings another kind of allegory. So now we're left kind of having to identify this other kind of allegory that he's referring to. Which is right. So, good. yeah, so, so we've, we've just talked about uh, allegory and parable very briefly and then of course the the phrase Tolkien seemed to prefer is fairy story or, sure. or fairy with the F-A-E and the, uh, the umlaut above That's it right. or whatever yeah. R-I-E um, ta- so, so tell us about the relationship between these three terms how, how do they relate to one another? Sure so from very careful research that I've done both on uh, biblical scholarship side like um, you know, Gisela Craiglinger has an excellent book on uh, George MacDonald and parables and allegory. And, and she's written a wonderful book. She mentions Tolkien in it. I've done research in Tolkien scholarship and biblical scholarship, and I've come to the careful conclusion that, um, let's work, work through it again. So Tolkien refers to the Lord of the Rings as one kind of allegory, opposite and distinct from the kind that it's not, the conscious and intentional. Okay, we got that. He also calls the Lord of the Rings a fairy story. Well, it's also an allegory. So I came to the conclusion that a fairy story is just a type of allegory that is not conscious and intentional. 
So what is it? Well, I'll reveal some more of that later, but I think it has to do with the way it reflects truth. I would say that it's implicit, it's more elusive, it's more suggestive, and uh, more um, indirect is probably the more scholarly way of putting it. You think of, um, oh God, was it Kierkegaard who talked about, uh, or Kant, I'm trying to remember which of the two talked a lot about indirect communication, but more along those lines. like, like Jesus' parables. It, well, exactly, exactly. And that's yeah. scholars, I mean, I could cite several off the top of my head have, have written, uh, some have called it even double indirect communication. I didn't go that far, but it is certainly indirect. Um, okay, so fairy story could be said to be a type of allegory. Now, why have not a lot of scholars said this? Because I don't think that many scholars are aware or have done enough research into the other things Tolkien has said about allegory. So maybe they feared saying that it is another kind opposite the conscious and intentional but i found some scholars who have gone so far to say that so anyway the way parable fits into this is the final kind of clue is is to look at uh, father robert murray who i've mentioned once or twice he talks in this essay tolkien and the art of the parable about the many ways in which fairy has um, how does he put it demonstrations of or uh, examples of the art of the parable Uh, Many Mm. fine examples, he says, of the art of the parable. And he says one thing that's kind of to the point. He says, allegory, and and so there's that word again, is is woven into the parable, Murray says, of Tolkien's art with a delicacy that's like a string of, uh, a baited string of hooks. And it doesn't spoil the joy of working it out for oneself. And I see that's what everybody wants to hear when they're reading Tolkien. Let me read the damn story and figure it out myself. (laughs) I know, I get it, and, and I agree. And that's what Murray says, and and uh, I think it's well said. And so he goes on to say uh, that the idea of the catastrophe is another thing that parables and um, and fairy stories have in common. And and I found in my research other aspects that Murray didn't have enough space to to really talk about. But anyway, that's how it all fits in. So you know, parable slash fairy story is a type of allegory opposite from this very conscious and intentional. Overly allegorical allegory, I guess is the gotcha. funky way to say it. And and, and I, I didn't give you this in advance. It just occurred to me now. Can, sure. can, you, can you help us to understand what Tolkien means by fairy or by fairy story? Is it sure. is it is it like kind of a fantasy story where you've got fantastical elements, or mm-hmm. what does he mean by that? So uh, two things. Uh, if I if I were to pick two things, uh, there's so many things to pick. But so fairy with the the umlaut is the world, is the fantasy world. So the perilous realm, as he also calls it, it's a metaphysical realm, a, a world that uh, affirms that reality is dual, right? That it's not monistic mm. and that it is. And, and so how does he how does he say this? Well, here's what he says. And in the introduction, I, I quote, um, fairy contains many things besides elves and fays and, and dwarves and dragons and giants but also moon and sun and mountains and streams and forest and men when they are enchanted. Well, there you have it. And I know Gould would love this because he's all about re-enchantment and, and we need it and he's right. But this is what Tolkien's talking about is that fairy is reality as it ought to be. And so that's how mm-hmm. I think he would have understood it, a metaphysical reality. And everyone's familiar with um, Tolkien's poem, or many people might be familiar with Mythopoeia, which he wrote as kind of a response to that 1931 stroll he had with Lewis, and that some of the comments he made on that stroll that helped Lewis come back to faith in 1931 have all kind of featured into that On Fairy Stories essay. 
So yeah, it's a fantasy realm, but uh, as some people have described it, it's on the borders of our world and the world of fairy. A good fairy mm. story is. Yeah. So then I suppose Harry Potter and certain contributions to the Star Wars uh, yeah. canon would qualify as fairy stories in the sense that they are truer to the world than as a culture we've tended to become which is reduced just to one the one of the two aspects of the cosmos mm. of reality namely the material part but the great thing about stories like Harry Potter Lord of the Rings and others is that they they help us to re, to re-engage with the reality that reality is dual not monistic is that what kind of like what you're saying exactly yeah you you got it you nailed it and i would say awesome. um Let's see, there's one other thing. So he also says that fairy, I will not attempt to, to, to define it, he says. At the very outset of on fairy story, he says, I won't attempt to define what a fairy story is. So I guess for your listeners, I'm not going to really give you a, a definition. But I've said that it's a type of allegory that is not very allegorical. It's more suggestive, whereas to be more allegorical is more in your face, okay? But he says this. He says, um, fairy cannot be caught in a net of words it one is one of its qualities is to be indescribable though not imperceptible he had a way with words and you really got to think <laughs> about that but i found that my studies of jesus's parables often evoke the same sort of descriptions and uh, yeah. murray also picked up on that apparently so you can it's one of those things where you you can't define it but you can see it you, you know it when you see it is what you're saying exactly yes yes yeah. that's that's a good beginning well one of the found one of the foundational parts of your book one of, one of the arguments that you make is that there are ways in which fairy stories and parables can help us to understand uh the gospel and indeed reality itself in ways that the kind of conscious intentional allegories that we've been talking about and that tolkien disliked mm. can't uh, and not just those kinds of things but even even straightforward prose like a like a didactic epistle that paul wrote or something like that there, there are ways in which fairy stories and parables can capture things and, and engage us that, that these other forms cannot tell us about that what what is it that what is the value of fairy stories and parables sure uh, in, in ways that these other things can't capture so I think that it's um, probably best to say that it's the quality that it has as a form of indirect communication and that um, it's based from a Christian point of view on the kind of communication that God seems to favor so I think if we believe as Christians as we do that to be part of being made in God's image is being myth makers. And Tolkien believed this and that we respond best to stories because as Lewis says in his Myth Became Fact essay, he says, shall we not be mythopathic because God is mythopoeic? So we, yeah, we must because we are. This is how, we're, how we've been created. So I think that um, one of the, the, the things that fairy story slash parable can, can cast light on reality and help us understand is that it's the chosen form under which God chose to disclose himself ultimately. Even the incarnation, if you really think about it, and I'll talk later about um, various other ways we can understand metaphor, but when I say the incarnation is a metaphor, I'm not saying it's not real or not true. That's a misunderstanding of metaphor. What I'm saying is there is no other way of saying what needs to be said. God became man, and Lewis says this himself in his, his essay, uh, Is Theology Poetry. He says, you're, you're welcome to try to restate your faith and non-metaphorical terms the reason we don't is we can't <laughs> we can't do it he's right and so i think um these stories are part of i don't want to sound generic here but saying this part of our dna it, it's part of our human kit and we respond best to i think story and indirect communication 
So there's kind of the theological component to it. It gives us space to pause and consider. I think the more, the less allegorical, and therefore the more suggestive, that is the fairy story slash parable, is more effective than the other kind because it gives us this space to come to belief as disciples, that it gives people time to really consider what the images mean, to assign the meaning to the images or to see what the author is pointing you to. And then it's not kind of like, okay, do you, do you, you know, do you, do you, do you repent? Do you turn? Are you ready? Are you, are you ready to you know, join the club? It, we need to breathe. Sometimes we need to, to really understand there's a narrative quality to coming to belief. And I think that's why um, it, it, it stirs emotions. It appeals to the heart, which is in the imagination, which I would love to get into, but you know we have limited time. Um, these are all things that are so important in communicating the Christian faith. And I think it's what is part of the power of, of parable, you might say, or, or fairy story. Um, mm. There's much more I could say. Well, and, and maybe one more thing you could speak to is the uh, the risk of misreading not just Tolkien, but mm. but also the parables, Jesus's parables. Because um, if I understand you correctly, we readers of the parables tend to focus on what we sort of presume to be their heavenly or eschatological meaning. Mm. Um, we, we, we sort of to the exclusion of the scene itself in which the parable is taking place and the narrative that takes place there, instead of really wrestling with that, we tend to immediately just go to what we suppose to be its real heavenly eschatological meaning, kind of in that that conscious intentional allegory type of way. Mm -hmm. But recognizing that parables and, and Tolkien are of a different sort, um, how, how do we risk missing the power in the parables and in Lord of the Rings, uh, and how can we mitigate that risk by reading them more properly? So I guess, uh, great question, really great question. I, I think that the best way to approach answering this is to say that what I've tried to do in my book is really primarily focus on the how. Uh, I do talk in chapter two about parables are you know good news stories and already not, but not yet stories and the content of our faith, but it's how truth is being reflected. And this was important to Tolkien for in a letter he says this, you know, what really mattered to me is to reflect truth in certain ways that were faithful to my worldview. Um, so my book and my research has really kind of consisted in, in the how. And I first learned this insight from Dr. Holly Ordway, who has written an excellent book on imaginative apologetics. And she reminds us, and I want to remind you, your listeners again at the, at the end of the, the cast today about this, but that the incarnation is kind of our key, uh, I think, in, in, in presenting our faith. And that we need to remember that uh, the incarnation challenges us to kind of look at reality differently and, and to realize that we're, um, you know, imaginative and rational creatures. Um, and I, I know I've kind of drifted from your point, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is that we we want to pay attention to the story form. I, to come back to the point is that we can avoid running the risk of misinterpreting the story if we pay attention to the form, the, the, the um, unfamiliar embodiment, as Tolkien called it, in his letters under which the content is kind of being conveyed. So I think sometimes maybe if we pay attention to the fact that it's a story that is communicating this and maybe that's something God wants us to pause and see. We're so often in a rush to decode the story, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that we don't slow down to understand that it's a story and that itself matters. So I think mm. that's really my, my point. 
Very good. Uh, you mentioned that in chapter two, you start to talk about how the Lord of the Rings is a fairy story about the good news or, or something along those lines. And, mm -hmm. and one of the ways that you talk about that I think really makes that true is that uh, the Lord of the Rings, like Jesus's parables, don't don't perpetuate popular conceptions about what I would call the Christian hope. Mm. Uh, as, as I'm sure you're aware, the hope of many Christians is in going to heaven when they die, um, which is fine insofar as it goes, except that the Christian hope isn't really about going to heaven when you die. It's about resurrection and heaven on earth. Um, and, and this Amen. kind of, uh, what, one of the things about the parables and about Lord of the Rings that, that is akin to the gospel is that they, they don't, have the, the characters don't have their hope in some other world mm -mm. they have their hope in the the world they're in now but but an improvement upon it and, and a restoration of it can you talk about that a little bit more and, and, oh, and how lord of the rings specifically um shares this uh heaven on earthly orientation as it were yeah again chris great cr uh, question and you you really spoke to it um very very nicely in saying that you know the the concern of the characters and, and the content of the events in Tolkien's uh, mythology is not otherworldly, although it feels that way, but otherworldly within this world, uh, a re-enchantment, right, kind of is, yeah. is, is around us. And, and that's a very important um, distinction to make because we often think in those disembodied platonic terms. And I, I quite agree with everything you've said about the popular idea of Christian hope. So now to your, to your question. Um, in which ways can we see this? I mean, there are a number of, of ways. And I, I just read, um, uh, saw actually another book uh, that somebody had published about this and, and speaks, as I do, about the types, the various guises under which, um, you know, illusions uh, appear to the Christian faith. And I just found some new ones. And I'm like, wow, you know, I didn't even see this in my research. There's just so much. So I think if I had to pick, I'm looking at a list here that are really uh, powerful the death or sleep of Aragorn in the Appendix A, so spoiler alert for some people, I know some people are really you know, round around the axle about that, but you know, I'm gonna be talking about things that are all over the, the book. Um, I, I certainly agree with Tolkien scholars who have said that there is a very much a Perusia-like uh, kind of interpretation of Aragorn's laying down his life and hinting that he's not dying, that he's gonna come back and that he's not, we're not bound by the circles of the world. There's very much a uh, eschatological hope of a reappearance of the Messiah. Um, you have uh, even this in the debate of Finrod and Andreth, which is a very unknown writing of Tolkien's. It's a part of the history of the Middle Earth books that looks forward, I think, to Aragorn, who, whose name is Estel, one of his many names is Hope, um, and that this prophecy from the first age of Middle-earth and this text I've mentioned also speaks past Aragorn to what will eventually be w what seems like a second coming. So there's definitely a lot of eschatology. Uh, you think of the halls of Mandos and the halls of waiting from the Silmarillion uh, for the elves uh, and sometimes men, but not often much for the halls of Mandos and the halls of waiting that, the, that Thorin the dwarf talks about. We have maybe hints at purgatory or life after death. Um, we see um, a lot of already and not yet elements of the gospel in, um, what was I going to say, uh, the unfinished, here it is, the unfinished sequel to The Lord of the Rings that many people are not aware of, Tolkien uh, almost uh, wrote a sequel, but he gave up because you know it was just too much, um, and there's there's details. But the new the new shadow was called, and he talks about how a hundred years after the death of Aragorn, you know people had gone back to playing uh, orc games and uh, being corrupt again and being bored with peace, which is a really great line. And I'm thinking this very much describes 
not a world that has not seen the Messiah, but a world that has had the Messiah come, but how quickly we fall into our sinful ways and forget that there's a king who has been enthroned, who has making all things right, and how quickly we stop believing in that. And so many Tolkien scholars have gone and seen that and said, oh, well, that's why the incarnation isn't present. You see, God is an in Middle Earth. I'm thinking, well, but that's very much a description of our sad world. And Tim Keller writes about this. And he, I quote him in my book. He says, you know, joy is partial in this life. We know there's a complete joy coming. So why should we expect that, you know, the world is supposed to be a merry place in Middle Earth? And I think that some of the sadness is what I'm trying to say of, of, of the stories is a hint that it is an already but not yet story. That yes, the king has returned, but that doesn't mean that God has erased his imagers or that, you know, Aragorn's return has put everything to rights. There's still work to be done. And I think this reflects some of that already but not yet. I think the friendship of Legolas and Gimli is another one. We think of uh, Galatians 328. That's my I, uh, love, yeah. I love their relationship. I do too. I'm so glad um, I mentioned it then too because in many of the interviews I've done, I haven't had a chance to. So I'm glad I, I got it in here. It's just great. You've asked some great questions. So there's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. We know that the uh, from the Silmarillion that the races, even Iluvatar, which is the name for God in Tolkien's mythology, he says to the creator of the dwarves when he uh, prematurely makes them, he says, look, there's going to be strife between your children and mine, men and elves, and there's you know going to be battles between them, and often the strife will arise, but I'm going to have a hollowed place for them in the end, and I'm going to let them live. But they have to go to sleep, and there's a bunch of stuff there. But this great friendship, uh, this love-hate relationship that they eventually or, or initially have, is mended, and and who really binds them together is Christ, and and uh, well through through Aragorn in the Fellowship, which itself is an incarnational mission. It leaves Rivendell on December 25th. So I could go on. You know, there's there's so many, there's just so many illusions I don't think people are, are familiar with. Uh, even the names of Aragorn, you know, uh, are, are just very um, uh, redolent of the gospel. That they're there. Even Strider? No, maybe not. Well, <laughs> well, well, I could I could stress this. I don't want to be indecent, but you you do think of what Strider describes himself as lying in ditches and weather beaten and. Uh, he says uh, in the early pages of the fellowship, he does say, uh, you know, a lonely man wearies of, you know, being uh, by himself and wants friendship. And you think of the man of sorrows. You think of, you think of Jesus uh, saying, you know, the Son of Man has, uh, you know, no place to lay his head. Uh, foxes have holes. You know that that scripture. So maybe, yeah, but definitely <laughs> Estel. That one's maybe not the name Strider, but the the character Strider, right? Um, that that yeah. part of Aragorn's life. Exactly. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. One of the things I found really fascinating in your book was your observation that like the biblical gospels and, and, and the gospel indeed itself, the Lord of the Rings won't be fully seen as the good news that it is without some familiarity with the prequel, The Hobbit, and the stories of Middle-earth contained in the Silmarillion. Mm. Um, in other words, you've got, you've got some intertextuality there that's really critical to understanding yes. the fullness of uh, both the New Testament and the Lord of the Rings. Now, now if you could tell our listeners first of all what those what the relationship is between those three things the lord of the sure. rings the hobbit and the silmarillion especially that last one a lot of people won't have ever heard of it oh, but yeah. then tell us about how those three exhibit this kind of intertextuality that we're talking about that's so important to seeing the good news in lord of the rings 
Um, okay, so let me let me tackle the interrelationship between the three. So the the Hobbit was was published. What was it? 1937, uh, just a few years before On Fairy Stories was published. And the Silmarillion Tolkien was working on all his life. Uh, Lord of the Rings was 54 and 55, 1954 and 55. Uh, and I think Tolkien's original intention, and he, he, I don't remember all the publication history and the, the wrestling he did with some of the people he was pitching it to. Uh, other scholars know this better than I do. But he wanted the Silmarillion to be published with, like, as an appendix to the Lord of the Rings, okay? So... If, if you look at the appendices today of the Lord of the Rings, readers can instantly understand what is meant by that, is that these are um, stories that are sort of the fleshed out background, if you will, of the smaller, I know, smaller story of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And so uh, that's one way to approach it. But the Silmarillion is a history of uh, the first and second age of, uh, of of Arda, which is the name for the world, which includes lands like uh, Beleriand, which were sunken in the cataclysm, and that, that's um, northwestern Middle-earth. Okay, uh, and uh, Lord of the Rings takes place in the Third Age. So it is a prequel, basically. It's a history book. There's also the Ainu Lindale, which is the uh, creation uh, myth, uh, the cosmogonic myth that Tolkien has um, for the way the world is made through song and, and music, which is beautiful in the Silmarillion. The Hobbit is, um, you know, a story about Bilbo and and Thorin and his quest to reclaim the Lonely Mountain, and so obviously is also a prequel. There's so much more: the discovery of the One Ring, the first glimpse of the Necromancer, i.e., Sauron, who is actually a lesser evil in Middle Earth. Uh, Morgoth was the chief, first evil. So we're getting real nerd here. Um, and so these books are deeply related. And when you're reading Lord of the Rings, you have uh, Strider being asked, uh, Aragorn being asked by the hobbits uh, on their journey to Rivendell from Bree, you know, to tell them the story. And he says, I'll tell you the story of Baron and Luthien. Well, readers will know that's a story from, uh, you know, part, part of the Silmarillion. And there's um, now new published material on that. And uh, there's a prose form. There's a poetic form. And so uh, another example is Gimli in... Um, um, Moria in the uh, you know the underground caverns of the dwarves Khazad-dûm in the Fellowship of the Ring and he sings the song of Durin. Well, that's going to be well known to readers who know the story of Aule and the making of the dwarves in I think chapter two of the Silmarillion. And I could go on and on. There are lots of allusions and glimpses and sometimes pages of them. And we've got whole stanzas of poems, uh, you know, or poetry uh, in general just there that is ripped right from these prequels, if you will. So that's by what we mean by you kind of needing that familiarity. Uh, I, I don't think you need it. I, I think it enhances. I would say I would say need, but you know, it really. Why wouldn't you try to to really gain the fullest appreciation that you could? And there are so many others. I mean, the touching on the eschatological messianic, uh, the name of Estel that is given to Aragorn in the Appendix A of the Lord of the Rings goes back to a writing that is now in volume 10 of the history of Middle-earth called The Debate of Finrod and Andrath. And those are related. I mean, that's a real obscure one, but it's super important. I talk about it in chapter five of my book. Hmm. Um, and then to the rest of your question, just really quick, let me say, Tolkien himself said, part of, I think in a letter he says, part of the appeal of The Lord of the Rings are the glimpses of the background. And so in my book, I explain this intertextuality, as you, as you so perfectly put it, uh, between these books, resembles and reflects the intertextuality that we we know is so important for a typological reading of scripture um, to have that Luke 24 road uh, to Emmaus sort of perspective going back and looking back at the scriptures and I talk about this in my book 
and why I think that it's because Tolkien's mind was just so soaked with scripture and he loved Jesus. He loved being a Christian, uh, Catholic though he was, I know for some of your listeners, you know, who might disagree with his theology, he, this was just part of, of the unconscious way in which the story was Christian. And maybe that's what he meant when he said, I think part of the appeal are these glimpses to the background is because it, it reflects what he does when he's reading his Bible. So I think there's, um, there's an important way in which those books kind of mirror or resemble the, the biblical yeah. texts. Yeah. I, I love, I, I'm glad that you sort of qualified the word need, right? You, there, there, is a, there is a sense in which we don't need, for example, the Old Testament yeah. to grasp the, the gospel in the New Testament. But nevertheless, the familiarity with the old can enrich one's understanding of the new. And I'll just give one example. Mm-hmm. There's this scene that we see in some of Jesus's parables uh, of, of, a, of a banquet, um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the parable of the uh, um, improperly dressed servant, for mm-hmm. example. And, um, you know, you certainly get a, uh, a picture of the kind of worldwide uh, Jew and Gentile hope that, um, that, that the world has in Christ and, and in enjoying um, the, the wedding banquet when Christ returns and all that. You can get mm. all of that without the Old Testament background. But what you don't get sure. if you're not familiar with the Old Testament is that picture of the, the, the feast that Yahweh sets for uh, all people in Isaiah 25, mm. um, at yeah. which he himself eats a meal it's just that the mm. meal that he eats is death itself Yahweh will mm. swallow up death and victory you know Isaiah says um, yeah. and so and so all of a sudden when you when you have that familiarity then these these parables of the wedding feast in the New Testament become not just um, eschatological in the sense of uh, bliss and fellowship with God and his people but it also becomes a, a victory celebration uh, uh, over the defeat of death um, which is not something you would get from the parables alone you know, agreed that, Intertextuality, so yeah, yeah, really, yeah. Really cool stuff. It is, and that's one of my favorite uh, passages from the Old Testament, by the way. And we think of um, uh, the mountains dripping with wine. I think is another reference in there, and you know, the, such beautiful poetry. We're reminded that God loves to disclose Himself through poetry. This is um, a primary means through which He speaks to us. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier that there's um, scholars who don't see the incarnation in uh, the Lord of the Rings, despite whatever other um, Christian, you know, aspects of the Christian worldview happen to appear in the Lord of the Rings. But you argue that there is, in fact, um, you do, in fact, see the incarnation in there, not in the sense that um, it is not in the sense, for example, that Aragorn or Strider and his other names is, in fact, Iluvatar incarnate, the way that we know Jesus to be God incarnate, but in another often overlooked um, uh, facet of the, of, the, of the concept of incarnation. Can you explain that and, and, and why we do see incarnation in Aragorn, just maybe not in the way we might immediately think? I, I, you know, I really struggle with this. This is such a great question, and when I finished the book, I knew there was much more to say. After reading Dr. Heiser's work, The Unseen Realm, and looking at the Angel of the Yahweh text throughout the Old Testament scriptures, and, and hearing what um, Brad Berzer and other Tolkien scholars have written about uh, the Lord of the Rings universe, um, I, I really think that maybe we should say, in, in a sense, that Aragorn's enthronement, and I will answer your particular way you phrase this question in a minute, but that Aragorn's enthronement does mean that Iluvatar has entered his creation as the way uh, a, a painter has entered his picture or an author his novel. And these are the words of Tolkien in the debate of Finrod and Andreth when they're talking about this in the first age, looking forward to 
time they don't know when this is going to happen. And one of the interlocutors is saying, well, how is God going to do that? I mean, wouldn't him entering Arda shatter it? And the elf Finrod, who's Galadriel's brother, by the way, uh, he, he says, no, um, you know, he, he would be able to enter it as an author would his book, uh, a painter, his picture. It wouldn't shatter it. You know, he's got a way of, of doing this. And I, I've been convinced by some of the Tolkien scholars who say that the enthronement of Aragorn is the enthronement of one of the Valar, Manwe, who is the vice regent of Iluvatar, and that Tolkien says that the king is Manwe's representative on Earth, and Manwe is Iluvatar's, uh, you know, divine sort of imminence in Earth, and so there's a connection there. I think what you know, obviously, Tolkien isn't saying this is on the same level as as historical gospel. What he's he's trying to do is recreate this, perhaps, scriptural experience, but in a way that is. Um, that inheres within the secondary world he's created. Um, but I think to your point, you know, your question is, you know, some scholars, you know, have, haven't seen this uh, and, and I have, and that's true because Tolkien does say there, there is no incarnation of the creator in my work. But as I argue in my book, the other things he, he says uh, about this in his letters lead us to conclude that this was his way of saying how the incarnation was present in his universe. And I think that, a lot of, uh, and here I agree with N.T. Wright, uh, a lot of Christians have come to their, their Bible and come to the table with Lord of the Rings in the same way, expecting to find a God-man walking about explicitly proclaiming and heralding this. And this has been the criticism of Tolkien scholars as well. Since we don't see that, therefore we don't see Christ. I don't, I, I think that's, and here's what Wright says. He says, we're, we're reading the Gospels, and treating what is already there as presupposition. You know, the incarnation means God is enthroned. So when we actually break down and say, okay, yeah, the incarnation literally means God is a human, but what does that mean? What is it, how do I make sense of that? And, and so I'm interested in the imaginative aspect, the meaning aspect here that I think is often overlooked. In, um, and, and so I think that these comments that Tolkien has made, he's not denying the incarnation is present. He's denying an allegorical representation there's a certain way in which it's 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 being communicated but it's in a way that is um, not a violation of his faith but is also in a way that is I think conforms to Jesus's way of doing it through his own parables because Jesus was arguably trying to say look I'm trying to tell you about who I am through these stories the story itself is a hint and you're not getting it it's going over your head uh, and and many New Testament scholars have pointed this out so it's a mm -hmm. tricky thing, this topic, because I know it's very divisive, and I'm certainly not the final uh, authority or answer on it, but I hope that my research will stir the pot a little bit. Yeah. So well, I think it, it deserves to. I, I hope that some pot stirring does indeed happen. Um, <laughs> and, and, and crucial, I think, to the answer that you just gave is that incarnation isn't only about the deity of Christ. It's also about the uh, the, the kingship of Christ, you know, God That's being right. or, or rather the kingship of God in Christ. Um, that is the sense in which. Uh, Aragorn's enthronement is um, uh, the, the the place where we see incarnation in the world. But of course, exactly. the um, 
when many of my listeners, although they, sh although many of my listeners share my amillennialist, uh, partial preterist view in which Jesus was enthroned after his ascension, he was enthroned in heaven after he rose. Mm -hmm. Um, there will be plenty of others who, um, have a premillennialist view who think that Christ will be enthroned as King when he returns at some point in our future. But of course, for, uh, for Aragorn's enthronement, which we've already established is in the already and not the not yet, um, mm -hmm. or at least That's not right. yet, the get not yet. That's um, right. Yeah. It, if, if that is where we see incarnation, then that must mean that you, at least on this issue of Christ's enthronement, must mm -hmm. see that as having taken place in the incarnation um, yes. in the first century. Uh, so so exactly. can you elaborate on that and, and, and how you see Aragorn's enthronement in the already as, you know, akin to uh, the allegorical almost of the, um, the, the enthronement of Jesus in the first century? Great, great question. Um, let me try to give an example from the book too. So we have it, it, the um, chapter five of, of book six. I think it's the final part of the Return of the. It's in the Return of the King, and it's the chapter the Steward and the King. I think it's chapter five. So the nerds out there like myself can look it up. Um, <laughs> and, and in this in this chapter, we have three among other things, but three really big events: the coronation of King Elisar, which is another one of Aragorn's name. Uh, names and the discovery of the uh, sapling of a tree that once existed in a descendant of a tree that one of the two trees that were planted in, in uh, Valinor, which is basically Tolkien's version of Eden. Okay. And then uh, his wedding to Arwen. Okay. And so I think that one, I would agree with you. Uh, you know, I have that, that preterist view. Uh, Christ was enthroned um, and, and you said a millennialist view, uh, so I, I think that I would fit in there that Christ is enthroned, the incarnation, and the uh, death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, uh, and I would agree with that. And I think that we would see that through also the glimpses that we get, I think of Paul talking about the first fruits with the, uh, in 1 Corinthians, that we see that in the discovery of the sapling. And uh, Gandalf and Aragorn are having this conversation on the slopes of Mount Mandalawin, which is where... Uh, Minas Tirith, the, the king's city is is carved out of, and he's saying, look, you need to keep this planted lest the line die out in the world. And I think this really is eschatological and also hints about the new creation. It's here now. It's already. It's not yet. I mean, it's going to be not yet as well, but it's already. It's right. It's happening. And it's already happened. Uh, by this time, Aragorn's already been coronated. He's got the crown on his head. Uh, he's about to get married, and this is all, I think, very important that it's a tree. I'm also thinking of Revelation when the two trees from Eden will reappear, and it, it's got so much significance. I think it's a very beautiful chapter. Um, and no, I don't think every little thing is a code to be decoded. It, it's With Tolkien, it's always these like, it's like you get a faint uh, whisper or a scent, and then it's gone. It's on the wind, and, and that's, the, that's the way it should be. So mm -hmm. when I'm analyzing this, folks, you know, I'm not saying this for that, this for that, this for that. It doesn't work out for a one because it's not allegory in that sense, uh, not a conscious allegory. But, yeah, I think I, def I think we definitely see that enthronement uh, here in the now. And, and then, yeah, Aragorn dies. He lays down his life. He goes to sleep, as Tolkien kind of hints, and he's looking forward to coming back. And he knows that his enthronement hasn't solved all the problems, but it is the crucial piece that is going to usher in the new creation to make all things new, or as Sam says, everything sad is going to come untrue, as he asks mm -hmm. Gandalf that great question that I love so much.
So kind of like how Jesus, having been enthroned, is going to rule until he put all puts all enemies under his feet. One of my favorite yeah. verses. Yeah, First Corinthians fifteen. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Very yes. good. Yeah. Um, before we start to wrap up, let's let's look at uh, t- turn our gaze a little bit away from the king um, mm-hmm. and look at the world around him. Because one of the things that you talk about in your fourth chapter, among other things, uh, are some of the ways in which the story of Middle Earth before the time of the Lord of the Rings, at, like it's told in the Silmarillion, mm-hmm. is alluded to in the Lord of the Rings itself. Um, and, and you've touched on that a little bit, but mm-hmm. but again, not so much focused on the king Aragorn, but on sure. the the rest of the world. You, you talk about how that's comparable to the way in which the New Testament alludes to Israel's history in the Old Testament. So can yeah. you talk a little bit about some of the ways that you see that uh, parallel, and then we'll start to wrap things up. Of course, yeah. So I think most uh, relevant selection I could pick here is the the way in which we see that intertextuality between the New and Old Testament and the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. When we look, and let's look at Tolkien's universe, when we see the relationship between Aragorn and another kingly figure and the race of the dwarves, which uh, is really one of my favorite chapters, chapter four, in which I talk about how they resemble in many ways, but not one for one, uh, the people of Israel and the, the failed experiment at w- w- which we read about in First Samuel 8 when God says to Samuel, hey, it's not you they're rejecting today, it's they've rejected me as their king. They've been doing this since they left Egypt. And so I look at the dwarves as kind of a a uh, house of David in Middle Earth, and that they are trying to uh, establish this kingdom. They have two kingdoms, one in the north, one in the south. Uh, and they have many other smaller kingdoms, but um, they fall to the enemy in very much ways like uh, Israel's a northern kingdom falls to Assyria. And um, you, you think of, um, of course, the, the dwarves being in exile constantly, uh, and especially the, the, the storyline of Thorin and how this uh, resembles in, in many ways the uh, Babylonian exile and, and some of the other wanderings of the Jewish people. Um, and I think also there's a lesser known story called the quest of Erebor where later after all the events of the Lord of the Rings wraps up, you see Gimli connecting all the dots as a dwarf between his people and the hobbits and Aragorn. And, he's, and he says, everything is strangely woven together, woven together very strangely. And he's stroking his beard. You know, it's, it's just all very providential and, and you can kind of see this, relationship between the other peoples of Middle Earth and we also see the dwarves um, we get hints in the Lord of the Rings later that it without having it had Thorin not even partially succeeded in his quest um, Gandalf says that Smaug would have destroyed Rivendell which was where a 10 year old Aragorn was living at the time of the Hobbit so that's kind of kind of a neat thing um, that's raised some eyebrows so you know I, I think th- there's just so much there's so much interconnectivity there uh, and I've tried to explore as much of it as I can. And there are also other beautiful allusions to the Silmarillion that I've already hinted at. Um, and, and I think that kind of speaks to your question as best Very I can. Good. Yeah. Well, let's start to wrap things up. Uh, I hope uh, this has been enough to sort of um, tease viewers into wanting to get their hands on a copy of your book. And I'll ask you how they should go about doing that in just a minute. Um, but but the but the first question as we start to wrap up that I have for you is um, viewers are going to span the, the they're going to run the gamut from uh, total newbies on the one hand, people that have absolutely no familiarity with Tolkien's world at all. Uh, mm. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have total Middle Earth nerds like yourself that are going to know all the details and, and everything. And then there are going to be people in the middle like me who have an appreciation for it and some familiarity but still yep. have a whole lot more we could learn regardless of where my viewers fall on that spectrum um how do you think that they and i um can 
have our our faith and and our larger Christian worldview enriched and expanded by reading Tolkien's books. In other words, not just be entertained by this rich story that Tolkien has told for for all as valuable as that is. Sure. But but specifically, how can we have our Christian worldview and, and our faith enriched uh, by reading it? It's a great question. Again, thank you. Uh, so I, I would say let's go to Tolkien's On Fairy Stories essay where he talks about. Uh, recovery, escape, and consolation. These are the three great characteristics of the fairy story. Uh, recovery, escape, and consolation. And I'll just kind of highlight, especially the first two, because consolation is a bit more uh, nuanced and I, I don't have the time, but um, recovery and escape, I think, so what can you really gain from 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 reading these, these books about, uh, as Lewis once said, I think, in his review of Lord of the Rings, you know, what can we gain about a never, never land? Learning about a never, 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 never land. Uh, and if you have anything serious to say, why read a book that's told in a never, never land? It's because there's some mythic quality about reality that you may not see, and your your vision needs to be re-enchanted. So I would say this is what Tolkien says: recovery is. He says we need to clean our windows from uh, the drab, tired way in which we look at the world, and, and clean them from, he says, our possessiveness which we, we think, we know what's up, we know the Christian story, I know my, I, you know, I was catechized, I catechized my kids, I, I know what I'm doing, I, I'm confident in my faith, and I think sometimes we might be overconfident, so maybe this might teach you something new, maybe it will uh, address a fear or a doubt you have, maybe it will, for a different believer, re-enchant a certain aspect of the faith, strengthen it, and enrich it in a way um, that you didn't realize your, your window, to use Tolkien's uh, image, was dirty. Um, and so this is what he means by recovery, is recovering a proper vision of reality. And we need to, to I guess, get a glimpse, as one of my favorite authors, uh, Dr. Charlie Starr, has said, we need to get a glimpse of the heavenly landscape yet again. And, and sometimes we're missing that, even as Christians. Um, and you know, we've heard the parables, yada, yada, yada. Well, Maybe you need to hear a parable about parables. Maybe <clears throat> you're, yeah, you know, you need to be re-enchanted on that. And I think escape, you know, we read great books to escape, but what Tolkien means by this is more of a philosophical sense that, you know, we need to escape to reality. We need to, to get a new uh, way of looking at reality to escape from those materialistic reductions that we hear that even Christians are tempted sometimes to subscribe to and or that sacred secular split where we, we you know, fudge our faith in that, uh, private corner, you know, we don't want to do that. And and so escape, Tolkien, means uh, a great many things, but uh, to get away from those um, improper and, and impoverished views of reality. And I think that's why you really ought to read it. And, and because this work is typological, it's got images that are participating and pointing to the Messiah. And, and that's, um, I mean, just three reasons that why I think um, no matter where you are on that spectrum, you know, uh, everybody can can appreciate something. Well, I tell you what, I, I'm definitely inspired to go back and, and read them, um, especially you. the Silmarillion, because I haven't read any of that. Uh, but I'm probably going to go ahead and read them all three again, having read your book. Good. Uh, Thank you. So I'm excited about that. Now let's turn away from Lord of the Rings and to the kinds of art that Christians produce more broadly, because it seems to me, I, I, I felt this way for almost my entire Christian walk, which has been uh, 20 years now. It, I've often felt that a lot of contemporary Christian art 
is just really bland and uninteresting. Um, and, and, and this is true, not just in music where the contemporary Christian music has a reputation for being pretty bland and uninteresting, uh, but also film, you know, mm. when Christians make films, they're often, uh, probably because they're that kind of overt conscious intentional allegory that Tolkien so disliked that the, the yes. Christian films are often really, although deeply powerful in the message, totally sure. not interesting to watch, you know, enough I, to, I to, to totally stick with the message. Yeah. Um, and and I think that uh, well so so I guess the question I have for you is um, to whatever extent I'm right about that assessment not everybody will see it the same way as you and I do but to whatever extent I'm right about that how do you think that Christian artists of various types whether we're talking film music painting or indeed writing uh, how do you think that um, uh, that they might benefit from approaching the the creation of their art in a way a little bit more like Tolkien uh, approached mm -hmm. his own so. I didn't get to talk about all the things that are entailed by the art of the parable, but at the heart of this art of the parable is remembering what the central, one of the central, one of the most important, I mean, it's hard to choose, they're also important, but the central miracle of Christianity is that God condescended to become man. He didn't have to do this. This was part of his master plan. He wanted to be one of us and to enter into the status of uh, an image bearer, to understand uh, what it was like to be thirsty and hungry, and so um, to, to be tempted to, to face evil and corruption, uh, and then to die, a real death, okay? And that is um, beautiful. So the incarnation, uh, and again, I've learned this from some really wise people that I've enjoyed reading over the, uh, Dr. Holly Ordway really put this in a beautiful way in her book, uh, and she says, you know, the incarnation should inform not only what we say in our apologetics and art making, I would say, she would agree with this, but in how we say it. So I would say remember that, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, all your art should be fleshy or, you know, licentious. I'm not saying that, but just remember that um, the incarnation is a work of art and, and that our art should be incarnational. That is, I guess what I mean by this is it should address and, uh, and speak to all the parts of a person. And I wouldn't just say, we're stark dualists. It's just not body and soul, but there's heart and spirit too. Uh, and then there's the rational faculty of the mind. And so all of these things need to be appealed to. So try to look at the whole person. Look look holistically. Uh, and I think the incarnation reminds us of that. So I think that would be my advice um, to to uh, to artists. Yeah, very good. I I I, I often think that um, if Christians would care more about the art itself and and not try so hard to make this overt message um yeah. they might end up something with something that's a little bit more seemingly secular like say uh, uh game of thrones but boy mm. you're gonna reach a lot more people uh with something as compelling and as enjoyable and as artful as uh game of thrones than say oh, yeah. god is not dead or something like that which is a fine movie but <laughs> yeah uh, no not, i'm with you yeah so we could do better we could do better yeah indeed I yeah i appreciate that yeah. um mm -hmm. okay now i almost all the time that i have an interview guest on i like to give them just an open-ended question toward the end an opportunity for them to give viewers a parting message something that they that you'd like viewers to be thinking about after we cut the air here in a few minutes even if they forget everything else that we've discussed so so what would your parting message to them be as, as we wrap today's up the today's interview up I would say probably um, the words of Sam always stay with me, that everything sad is going to come untrue and it's going to be okay. Uh, and I think this is not a, you know, just a whistling in the dark kind of hope for a, a bright future. It's not optimism, but it's real hope. 
And uh, I think it's a beautiful line. And that's what uh, I would like people to remember. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Awesome. I would say, yeah. Very good. Uh, where do you recommend that viewers go to get their hands on either a digital or a hard copy of your book, The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle-Earth? Thanks, Chris. I, I would say, um, and I sent you the links so you can provide those with people, but I have a WordPress uh, website. It's got a little Tolkien reference in there. It's like lastdunadoncom.wordpress.com. You know, I don't know if I had a hand in naming that, but uh, I provided you with the link. That's one place. But if readers, uh, I'm sorry, listeners or, or uh, viewers better uh, with uh, acquainted with Amazon, I have an Amazon page. I have a website, as I mentioned. Um, and I also have a YouTube channel and a podcast myself on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes called Mythic Mission. So there's lots of ways uh, to get in touch with me. And if you find me one way, I have links to the other places. So, uh, yeah, there's lots of ways to find me. And my book is available in Kindle, uh, hardcover by demand, I think. There's a couple copies floating around in paperback. So. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated it. Uh, and well, um, I will make sure to include those links in the description of the video. Uh, if not tonight, I'll get them in there tomorrow morning. Uh, but thanks again. I know that it's a little bit late where you're at and uh, I've taken up 90 minutes of your time. Thank you so much for your willingness. I really appreciate it. And, and I think that my viewers will, uh, will appreciate the conversation as well. I'm honored that you had me on. Thank you. And it was my pleasure. Awesome. All right, well, that's it, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Apologetics. Uh, come back two weeks from today, Monday, March 8th, 6 p.m. Pacific, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern for the next episode of The Apologetics. Uh, and in the meantime, go get your hands on a copy of Michael's book, The Gospel, or sorry, The Good News, The Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle Earth. And also, while you're at it, why don't you pick up The Lord of the Rings and possibly The Hobbit and The Silmarillion as well. Um, thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...